Chapter 7 of In Chancery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Foresight Saga 2 In Chancery by John Galsworthy. Part 2, Chapter 7. Darty versus Darty. The suit, Darty versus Darty, for restitution of those conjugal rights concerning which Winifred was at heart so deeply undecided, followed the laws of subtraction towards Day of Judgment. This was not reached before the courts rose for Christmas, but the case was third on the list when they sat again. Winifred spent the Christmas holidays a thought more fashionably than usual with the matter locked up in her low-cut bosom. James was particularly liberal to her that Christmas, expressing thereby his sympathy and relief at the approaching dissolution of her marriage with that precious rascal, which his old heart felt but his old lips could not utter. The disappearance of Darty made the fallen consuls a comparatively small matter, and as to the scandal— the real animus he felt against that fellow, and the increasing lead which property was attaining over reputation and a true foresight about to leave this world, served to drug a mind from which all allusions to the matter, except his own, were studiously kept. What worried him as a lawyer and a parent was the fear that Darty might suddenly turn up and obey the order of the court when made. That would be a pretty howdy-do. The fear preyed on him, in fact, so much that in presenting Winifred with a large Christmas check, he said, It's chiefly for that chap out there, to keep him from coming back. It was, of course, to pitch away good money, but all in the nature of insurance against that bankruptcy which would no longer hang over him if only the divorce went through, and he questioned Winifred rigorously until she could assure him that the money had been sent. Poor woman! It cost her many a pang to send what must find its way into the vanity bag of that creature. Soames, hearing of it, shook his head. They were not dealing with a foresight, reasonably tenacious of his purpose. It was very risky without knowing how the land lay out there. Still, it would look well with the court, and he would see that Dreamer brought it out. I wonder, he said suddenly, where that ballet goes after the Argentine never omitting a chance of reminder, for he knew that Winifred still had a weakness, if not for Darty, at least for not laundering him in public. Though not good at showing admiration, he admitted that she was behaving extremely well, with all her children at home gaping like young birds for news of their father, Imogen just on the point of coming out, and Val very restive about the whole thing. He felt that Val was the real heart of the matter to Winifred, who certainly loved him beyond her other children. The boy could spoke the wheel of this divorce yet if he set his mind to it, and Soames was very careful to keep the proximity of the preliminary proceedings from his nephew's ears. He did more. He asked him to dine at the remove, and over Val's cigar introduced the subject which he knew to be nearest to his heart. "'I hear,' he said, "'that you want to play polo up at Oxford.' Val became less recumbent in his chair. "'Rather,' he said. "'Well,' continued Soames, "'that's a very expensive business, 
Your grandfather isn't likely to consent to it unless he can make sure that he's not got any other drain on him. And he paused to see whether the boy understood his meaning. Val's thick, dark lashes concealed his eyes, but a slight grimace appeared on his wide mouth, and he muttered, I suppose you mean my dad. Yes, said Soames. I'm afraid it depends on whether he continues to be a drag or not. And said no more, letting the boy dream it over. But Val was also dreaming in those days of a silver roan palfrey and a girl riding it. Though Crum was in town, and an introduction to Cynthia Dark to be had for the asking, Val did not ask. Indeed, he shunned Crum and lived a life strange even to himself, except in so far as accounts with Taylor and Livery Stable were concerned. To his mother, his sisters, his young brother, he seemed to spend his vacation in seeing fellows and his evenings sleepily at home. They could not propose anything in daylight that did not meet with the one response. Sorry, I've got to see a fellow. And he was put to extraordinary shifts to get in and out of the house unobserved in riding clothes, until, being made a member of the Goats Club, he was able to transport them there, where he could change unregarded and slip off on his hack to Richmond Park. He kept his growing sentiment religiously to himself. Not for a world would he breathe to the fellows, whom he was not seeing, anything so ridiculous from the point of view of their creed and his. But he could not help its destroying his other appetites. It was coming between him and the legitimate pleasures of youth at last on its own, in a way which must, he knew, make him a milksop in the eyes of Crumb. All he cared for was to dress in his last created riding togs and steal away to the Robin Hill gate, where presently the silver Rowan would come demurely sidling with its slim and dark-haired rider, and in the glades bare of leaves they would go off side by side, not talking very much, riding races sometimes, and sometimes holding hands. More than once of an evening, and a moment of expansion, he had been tempted to tell his mother how this shy, sweet cousin had stolen in upon him and wrecked his life. But bitter experience, that all persons above thirty-five were spoil-sports, prevented him. After all, he supposed he would have to go through with college, and she would have to come out before they could be married, so why complicate things, so long as he could see her? Sisters were teasing and unsympathetic beings, a brother worse, so there was no one to confide in. Ah, and this beastly divorce business! What a misfortune to have a name which other people hadn't! If only he had been called Gordon, or Scott, or Howard, or something fairly common. But Darty, There wasn't another in the directory. One might as well have been named Morkin, for all the covert it afforded. So matters went on, till one day in the middle of January the Silver Roan Palfrey and its rider were missing at the tryst. Lingering in the cold, he debated whether he should ride on to the house. But Jolly might be there, and the memory of their dark encounter was still fresh within him. One could not be always fighting with her brother. So he returned dismally to town and spent an evening plunged in gloom. At breakfast next day he noticed that his mother had on an unfamiliar dress and was wearing her hat. The dress was black, with a glimpse of peacock blue, the hat black and large. She looked exceptionally well. But when after breakfast she said to him, "'Come in here, Val,' and led the way to the drawing-room, he was at once beset by qualms. Winifred carefully shut the door and passed her handkerchief over her lips. 
Inhaling the violet de parme with which it had been soaked, Val thought, Has she found out about Holly? Her voice interrupted. Are you going to be nice to me, dear boy? Val grinned doubtfully. Will you come with me this morning? I've got to see, began Val, but something in her face stopped him. I say, he said, you don't mean. Yes, I have to go to the court this morning. Already, that damned business which he had almost succeeded in forgetting, since nobody ever mentioned it. In self-commiseration he stood picking little bits of skin off his fingers. Then noticing that his mother's lips were all awry, he said impulsively, All right, mother, I'll come. The brutes. What brutes he did not know, but the expression exactly summed up their joint feeling and restored a measure of equanimity. I suppose I'd better change into a shooter, he muttered, escaping to his room. He put on the shooter, a high collar, a pearl pin, and his neatest gray spats to a somewhat blasphemous accompaniment. Looking at himself in the glass, he said, Well, I'm damned if I'm going to show anything, and went down. He found his grandfather's carriage at the door, and his mother in furs, with the appearance of one going to a mansion-house assembly. They seated themselves side by side in the closed barouche and all the way to the courts of justice Val made but one allusion to the business in hand. There'll be nothing about those pearls, will there? The little tufted white tails of Winifred's muff began to shiver. Oh, no, she said. It'll be quite harmless today. Your grandmother wanted to come, too, but I wouldn't let her. I thought you could take care of me. You look so nice, Val. Just pull your collar up a little bit more at the back. That's right. If they bully you, began Val. Oh, they won't. I shall be very cool. It's the only way. They won't want me to give evidence or anything. No, dear, it's all arranged. And she patted his hand. The determined front she was putting on it stayed the turmoil in Val's chest, and he busied himself in drawing his gloves off and on. He had taken what he now saw was the wrong pair to go with his spats. They should have been gray, but were deerskin of a dark tan. Whether to keep them on or not he could not decide. They arrived soon after ten. It was his first visit to the law courts, and the building struck him at once. "'By Jove,' he said as they passed into the hall, "'this would make four or five jolly good racket courts.' Soames was awaiting them at the foot of the stairs. "'Here you are.' he said, without shaking hands, as if the event had made them too familiar for such formalities. It's Happerly Brown Court one. We shall be on first. A sensation such as he had known when going into bat was playing now on the top of Val's chest, but he followed his mother and uncle doggedly, looking at no more than he could help, and thinking that the place smelled fuggy. People seemed to be lurking everywhere, and he plucked Soames by the sleeve. I say, uncle, you're not going to let those beastly papers in, are you? Soames gave him the sideway look which had reduced many to silence in its time. In here, he said. You needn't take off your furs, Winifred. Val entered behind them, nettled and with his head up. In this confounded hole everybody, and there were a good many of them, seemed sitting on everybody else's knee, though really divided from each other by pews, and Val had a feeling that they might all slip down together into the well. 
This, however, was but a momentary vision, of mahogany and black gowns, and white blobs of wigs and faces and papers, all rather secret and whispery, before he was sitting next to his mother in the front row, with his back to it all, glad of her violette de parme, and taking off his gloves for the last time. His mother was looking at him. He was suddenly conscious that she had really wanted him there next to her, and that he counted for something in this business. All right, he would show them. Squaring his shoulders, he crossed his legs and gazed inscrutably at his spats. But just then an old Johnny, in a gown and long wig, looking awfully like a funny rattled woman, came through a door into the high pew opposite, and he had to uncross his legs hastily and stand up with everybody else. Darty versus Darty. It seemed to Val unspeakably disgusting to have one's name called out like this in public and suddenly conscious that someone nearly behind him had begun talking about his family, he screwed his face round to see an old bewigged buffer, who spoke as if he were eating his own words. Queer-looking old cuss, the sort of man he had seen once or twice dining at Park Lane and punishing the port. He knew now where they dug them up. All the same he found the old buffer quite fascinating, and would have continued to stare if his mother had not touched his arm. Reduced to gazing before him, he fixed his eyes on the judge's face instead. Why should that old sportsman with his sarcastic mouth and his quick-moving eyes have the power to meddle with their private affairs? Hadn't he affairs of his own, just as many and probably just as nasty? And there moved in Val, like an illness, all the deep-seated individualism of his breed. The voice behind him droned along. Differences about money matters. Extravagance of the respondent. What a word! Was that his father? Strange situation. Frequent absences on the part of Mr. Darty. My client, very rightly your ludship will agree, was anxious to check a course, but led to ruin. Remonstrated. Gambling at cards and on the race course. That's right, thought Val. Pile it on. Crisis early in October when the respondent wrote her this letter from his club. Val sat up and his ears burned. I propose to read it with the recommendations necessary to the epistle of a gentleman who has been, shall we say, dining, Milud. Old brute, thought Val, flushing deeper. You're not paid to make jokes. You will not get the chance to insult me again in my own house. I am leaving the country tomorrow. It's played out. An expression, your ludship, not unknown in the mouths of those who have not met with conspicuous success. Sniggering owls, thought Val, and his flush deepened. I am tired of being insulted by you. My client will tell your ludship that these so-called insults consisted in her calling him the limit, a very mild expression, I venture to suggest, in all the circumstances. Val glanced sideways at his mother's impassive face. It had a hunted look in the eyes. Poor mother, he thought, and touched her arm with his own. The voice behind him droned on. I'm going to live a new life. M.D. And next day, Milud, the respondent left by the steamship Tuscarora for Buenos Aires. Since then we have nothing from him but a cabled refusal in answer to the letter which my client wrote the following day in great distress begging him to return to her. With your ludship's permission, I shall now put Mrs. Darty in the box. When his mother rose, Val had a tremendous impulse to rise, too, and say, Look here, I'm going to see you jolly well treat her decently. 
He subdued it, however, heard her saying, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and looked up. She made a rich figure of it in her furs and large hat, with a slight flush on her cheekbones, calm, matter-of-fact, and he felt proud of her thus confronting all these confounded lawyers. The examination began. Knowing that this was only the preliminary to divorce, Val followed with a certain glee the questions framed so as to give the impression that she really wanted his father back. It seemed to him that they were foxing old bagwigs finally, and he received a most unpleasant jar when the judge said suddenly, "'Now, why did your husband leave you? Not because you called him the limit, you know.' Val saw his uncle lift his eyes to the witness-box, without moving his face, heard a shuffle of papers behind him, an instinct told him that the issue was in peril. Had Uncle Soames and the old buffer behind made a mess of it? His mother was speaking with a slight drawl. No, my lord, but it had gone on a long time. What had gone on? Our differences about money. But you supplied the money. Do you suggest that he left you to better his position? The brute, the old brute and nothing but the brute, thought Val suddenly. He smells a rat he's trying to get at the pastry. And his heart stood still. If, if he did, then of course he would know that his mother didn't really want his father back. His mother spoke again, a thought more fashionably. No, my lord, but you see I had refused to give him any more money. It took him a long time to believe that, but he did at last, and when he did... I see, you had refused. But you've sent him some sense. My lord, I wanted him back. And you thought that would bring him? I don't know, my lord. I acted on my father's advice. Something in the judge's face, in the sound of the papers behind him, in the sudden crossing of his uncle's legs, told Val that she had made just the right answer. Crafty, he thought. By Jove, what humbug it all is. The judge was speaking. Just one more question, Mrs. Darty. Are you still fond of your husband? Val's hands, slack behind him, became fists. What business had that judge to make things human suddenly? To make his mother speak out of her heart, and say what perhaps she didn't know herself before all these people? It wasn't decent. His mother answered, rather low, Yes, my lord. Val saw the judge nod. "'Wish I could take a cock shy at your head,' he thought irreverently, as his mother came back to her seat beside him. Witnesses to his father's departure and continued absence followed. One of their own maids, even, which struck Val as particularly beastly. There was more talking, all humbug, and then the judge pronounced the decree for restitution, and they got up to go. Val walked out behind his mother, chin squared, eyelids drooped, doing his level best to despise everybody. His mother's voice in the corridor roused him from an angry trance. "'You behaved beautifully, dear. It was such a comfort to have you. Your uncle and I are going to lunch.' "'All right,' said Val. "'I shall have time to go and see that fellow.' And parting from them abruptly, he ran down the stairs and out into the air. He bolted into a hansom and drove to the goats' club. His thoughts were on Holly and what he must do before her brother showed her this thing in tomorrow's paper. When Val had left them, Soames and Winifred made their way to the Cheshire Cheese. He had suggested it as a meeting place with Mr. Belby. 
At that early hour of noon they would have it to themselves, and Winifred had thought it would be amusing to see this far-famed hostelry. Having ordered a light repast, to the consternation of the waiter, they awaited its arrival together with that of Mr. Belby, in silent reaction after the hour and a half suspense on the tenterhooks of publicity. Mr. Belby entered presently, preceded by his nose, as cheerful as they were glum. Well, they had got the decree of restitution, and what was the matter with that? Quite, said Soames, in a suitably low voice, but we shall have to begin again to get evidence. He'll probably try the divorce. It would look fishy if it comes out that we knew of misconduct from the start. His questions showed well enough that he doesn't like this restitution dodge. Foe, said Mr. Belby cheerily. He'll forget. Why, man, he'll have tried a hundred cases between now and then. Besides, he's bound by precedent to give you your divorce if the evidence is satisfactory. We won't let him know that Mrs. Darty had knowledge of the facts. Dreamer did it very nicely. He's got a fatherly touch about him. Soames nodded. And I compliment ye, Mrs. Darty, went on Mr. Belby. Ye've a natural gift for giving evidence. Steady as a rock. Here the waiter arrived, with three plates balanced on one arm, and the remark, I hurried up the puddin', sir. You'll find plenty of lark in it today. Mr. Belby applauded his forethought with a dip of his nose but Soames and Winifred looked with dismay at their light lunch of gravified brown masses, touching them gingerly with their forks in the hope of distinguishing the bodies of the tasty little song-givers. Having begun, however, they found they were hungrier than they thought, and finished the lot, with a glass of port apiece. Conversation turned on the war. Soames thought Lady Smith would fall, and it might last a year. Belby thought it would be over by the summer. Both agreed that they wanted more men. There was nothing for it but complete victory, since it was now a question of prestige. Winifred brought things back to more solid ground by saying that she did not want the divorce suit to come on till after the summer holidays had begun at Oxford. Then the boys would have forgotten about it before Val had to go up again. The London season, too, would be over. The lawyers reassured her an interval of six months was necessary. After that, the earlier the better. People were now beginning to come in, and they parted. Soames to the city, Belby to his chambers, Winifred and a hansom to Park Lane to let her mother know how she had fared. The issue had been so satisfactory on the whole that it was considered advisable to tell James, who never failed to say day after day that he didn't know about Winifred's affair. He couldn't tell. As his sands ran out, the importance of mundane matters became increasingly grave to him, as if he were feeling, I must make the most of it, and worry well. I shall soon have nothing to worry about. He received the report grudgingly. It was a new-fangled way of going about things, and he didn't know. But he gave Winifred a check, saying, I expect you'll have a lot of expense. That's a new hat you've got on. Why doesn't Val come and see us? Winifred promised to bring him to dinner soon. And going home, she sought her bedroom where she could be alone. Now that her husband had been ordered back into her custody, with a view to putting him away from her forever, she would try once more to find out from her sore and lonely heart what she really wanted. End of Part 2, Chapter 7 Recording by Leanne Howlett